Welcome to the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. It is Wednesday, May 20, 2020. And on today's episode, we have uh, two chapters from Right Ho Jeeves, which is a novel by P.G. Woodhouse. P.G. Woodhouse is Sir Pelham Grenville Woodhouse, and he was an English author and one of the most widely read humorists of the 20th century. Uh, he was born in 1881, died in 19. 19- uh, 75, and one of his most uh, famous recurring characters in his short stories and books is Jeeves, uh, Reginald Jeeves, who is a valet in the sense that he's responsible for a person. He's not a butler who's responsible for a household. He is the valet of uh, a wealthy and idle young Londoner named Bertie Worcester. Uh, he first appeared in uh, print in 1915, and Jeeves continued to be a feature in Woodhouse's work until his last uh, completed novel uh, in 1974, which was a span of 60 years. So the chapters we're going to play today are chapters one and two of the book Right Ho Jeeves, which is the second full-length novel featuring the popular characters of Jeeves and Bertie Worcester. We then have uh, Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess, but we will start the show with Anne-Marie Sheridan singing the beautiful song Someone to Watch Over Me. Hi, this is Wakun Chen, editor of La Chene Musicale magazine and co-founder of the Corona Serenades. The coronavirus has forced us all into social isolation. La Chene Musicale is mobilizing an international movement to deliver the joy of music with the Corona Serenades. We would like to thank the Kosing Luke Public Library for supporting this initiative and to all in Kosing Luke, be well and stay safe. You can find out more by visiting coronaserenades.com.
Right Ho Jeeves by P. G. Woodhouse Chapter 1 Jeeves, I said, may I speak frankly? Certainly, sir. What I have to say may wound you. Not at all, sir. No, wait. Hold the line a minute. I've gone off the rails. I don't know if you've had the same experience, but the snag I always come up against when I'm telling a story is this dashed difficult problem of where to begin it. It's a thing you don't want to go wrong over because one false step and you're sunk. I mean, if you fool around too long at the start, trying to establish atmosphere, as they call it, and all that sort of rot, you fail to grip, and the customers walk out on you. Get off the mark, on the other hand, like a scalded cat, and your public is at a loss. It simply raises its eyebrows and can't make out what you're talking about. And in opening my report of the complex case of Gussie Finknuttle, Madeline Bassett, my cousin Angela, my Aunt Dahlia, my Uncle Thomas, young Tuppy Glossop, and the cook Anatole, with the above spot of dialogue, I see I have made the second of these two floaters. I shall have to hark back a bit and taking it for all in all, and weighing this against that, I suppose the affair may be said to have had its inception, if inception is the word I want, with that visit of mine to Khan. If I hadn't gone to Khan, I shouldn't have met the Bassett, or bought that white mess-jacket, and Angela wouldn't have met her shark, and Aunt Dahlia wouldn't have played Baccarat. Yes, most decidedly, Khan was the point de puis. Right-ho, then, let me marshal the facts. I went to Khan, leaving Jeeves behind me, he having intimated that he did not wish to miss Ascot, round the beginning of June. With me travelled my Aunt Dahlia and her daughter Angela. Tuppy Glossop, Angela's betrothed, was to have been part of the party, but at the last moment couldn't get away. Uncle Tom, Aunt Dahlia's husband, remained at home, because he can't stick the south of France at any price. So, there you have the layout. Aunt Dahlia, Cousin Angela, and self, off to Cannes, round about the beginning of June. All pretty clear so far, what? We stayed at Cannes about two months, and except for the fact that Aunt Dahlia lost her shirt at Baccarat, and Angela nearly got inhaled by a shark while aquaplaning, 
a pleasant time was had by all. On July the 25th, looking bronzed and fit, I accompanied aunt and child back to London. At 7 p.m. on July the 26th, we alighted at Victoria, and at 7.20 or thereabouts, we parted with mutual expressions of esteem. They to shove off in Aunt Dahlia's car to Brinkley Court, her place in Worcestershire, where they were expecting to entertain Tuppy in a day or two. I to go to the flat, drop my luggage, clean up a bit, and put on the soup and fish preparatory to pushing round to the drones for a bite of dinner. And it was while I was at the flat, toweling the torso after a much-needed rinse, that Jeeves, as we chatted of this and that, picking up the threads, as it were, suddenly brought the name of Gussie Feeknoddle into the conversation. As I recall it, the dialogue ran something as follows. Self. Well, Jeeves, here we are, what? Jeeves. Yes, sir. Self. I mean to say, home again. Jeeves. Precisely, sir. Self. Seems ages since I went away. Jeeves. Yes, sir. Self. Have a good time at Ascot? Jeeves. Most agreeable, sir. Self. Win anything? Jeeves. Quite a satisfactory sum, thank you, sir. Self. Good. Well, Jeeves, what news on the Rialto? Anybody been phoning or calling or anything during my abs? Jeeves, Mr. Finknoddle, sir, has been a frequent caller. I stared. Indeed. It would not be too much to say that I gaped. Mr. Finknoddle? Yes, sir. You don't mean Mr. Finknoddle? Yes, sir. But Mr. Finknoddle's not in London. Yes, sir. Well, I'm blowed. And I'll tell you why I was blowed. I found it scarcely possible to give credence to his statement. This Finknoddle, you see, was one of those freaks you come across from time to time during life's journey who can't stand London. He lived year in and year out, covered with moss, in a remote village down in Lincolnshire, never coming up even for the Eton and Harrow match. And when I asked him once if he didn't find the time hang a bit heavy on his hands, he said no, because he had a pond in his garden and studied the habits of newts. I couldn't imagine what could have brought the chap up to the great city. I would have been prepared to bet that as long as the supply of newts didn't give out, nothing could have shifted him from that village of his. Are you sure? Yes, sir. You've got the name correctly. Thinknoddle? Yes, sir. Well, it's the most extraordinary thing. It must be five years since he was in London. He makes no secret of the fact that the place gives him the pip. Until now, he has always stayed glued to the country, completely surrounded by newts. Sir? Newts, Jeeves. Mr. Finknoddle has a strong newt complex. You must have heard of newts those little sort of lizard things that charge about in ponds? Oh, yes, sir. The aquatic members of the family Salamindridae, which constitute the genus Mogi. That's right. Well, Gussie has always been a slave to them. He used to keep them at school. I believe young gentlemen frequently do, sir. He kept them in his study in a kind of glass tank arrangement, and pretty nifty the whole thing was, I recall, I suppose one ought to have been able to see what the end would be even then, but you know what boys are. Careless, heedless, busy about our own affairs, we scarcely gave this kink in Gussie's character a thought. 
We may have exchanged an occasional remark about it taking all sorts to make a world, but nothing more. You can guess the sequel. The trouble spread. Indeed, sir? Absolutely, Jeeves. The craving grew upon him. The newts got him. Arrived at man's estate, he retired to the depths of the country and gave up his life to these dumb chums. I suppose he used to tell himself that he could take them or leave them alone, and then found, too late, that he couldn't. It's often the way, sir. Too true, Jeeves. At any rate, for the last five years he has been living at this place of his down in Lincolnshire, as confirmed a species-shunning hermit as ever put fresh water in the tank every second day and refused to see a soul. That's why I was so amazed when you told me he had suddenly risen to the surface like this. I still can't believe it. I am inclined to think that there must be some mistake, and that this bird who has been calling here is some different variety of finknoddle. The chap I know wears horn-rimmed glasses and has a face like a fish. How does that check up with your data? The gentleman who came to the flat wore horn-rimmed spectacles, sir. And looked like something on a slab? Possibly there was a certain suggestion of the piscine, sir. Then it must have been Gussie, I suppose. What on earth could have brought him up to London? I am in a position to explain that, sir. Mr. Finknottle confided to me his motive in visiting the metropolis. He came because the young lady is here. Young lady? Yes, sir. You don't mean he's in love? Yes, sir. Well, I'm dashed. I'm really dashed. I positively am dashed, Jeeves. And I was, too. I mean to say, a joke's a joke, but there are limits. Then I found my mind turning to another aspect of this rummy affair. Considering the fact that Gussie Finknottle, against all the ruling of the form book, might have fallen in love, why should he have been haunting my flat like this? No doubt the occasion was one of those when a fellow needs a friend, but I couldn't see what had made him pick on me. It wasn't as if he and I were in any way bosom. We had seen a lot of each other at one time, of course, but in the last two years I hadn't had so much as a postcard from him. I put all this to Jeeves. Odd his coming to me. Still, if he did, he did. No argument about that. It must have been a nasty jar for the poor perisher when he found I wasn't here. No, sir. Mr. Finknottle did not call to see you, sir. Pull yourself together, Jeeves. You just told me that this is what he has been doing, and assiduously at that. It was I with whom he was desirous of establishing communication, sir. You? But I didn't know you had ever met him. I had not had that pleasure until he called here, sir. But it appears that Mr. Sipperly, a fellow student of which Mr. Finknottle had been at the university, recommended him to place his affairs in my hands. The mystery had conked. I saw all. As I dare say you know, Jeeves's reputation as a counselor has long been established among the Conoscenti, and the first move of any of my little circle on discovering themselves in any form of soup is always to roll round and put the thing up to him. And when he's got A out of a bad spot, A puts B onto him, and then when he has fixed up B, B sends C along, and so on, if you get my drift, and so forth. That's how these big consulting practices like Jeeves's grow. 
Old Sippy, I knew, had been deeply impressed by the man's efforts on his behalf at the time when he was trying to get engaged to Elizabeth Moon, so it was not to be wondered at that he should have advised Gussie to apply. Pure routine, you might say. Oh, you're acting for him, are you? Yes, sir. Now I follow. Now I understand. And what is Gussie's trouble? Oddly enough, sir, precisely the same as that of Mr. Sipperly, when I was enabled to be of assistance to him. No doubt you recall Mr. Sipperly's predicament, sir. Deeply attached to Miss Moon, he suffered from a rooted diffidence which made it impossible for him to speak. I nodded. I remember, yes. I recall the Sipperly case. He couldn't bring himself to the scratch. A marked coldness of the feet, was there not? I recollect you saying he was letting, what was it, letting something do something? Cats entered into it, if I'm not mistaken. Letting I dare not wait upon I would, sir. That's right. But what about the cats? Like the poor cat of the adage, sir. Exactly. It beats me how you think up these things. And Gussie, you say, is in the same position? Yes, sir. Each time he endeavors to formulate a proposal of marriage, his courage fails him. And yet, if he wants this female to be his wife, he's got to say so, what? I mean, only civil to mention it. Precisely, sir. I mused. Well, I suppose this was inevitable, Jeeves. I wouldn't have thought that this finknoddle would ever have fallen a victim to the divine P, but if he has, no wonder he finds the going sticky. Yes, sir. Look at the life he's led. Yes, sir. I don't suppose he has spoken to a girl for years. What a lesson this is to us, Jeeves, not to shut ourselves up in country houses and stare into glass tanks. You can't be the dominant male if you do that sort of thing. In this life, you can choose between two courses. You can either shut yourself up in a country house and stare into tanks, or you can be a dasher with the sex. You can't do both. No, sir. I mused once more. Gussie and I, as I say, had rather lost touch. But all the same, I was exercised about the poor fish, as I am about all my pals, close or distant, who find themselves treading upon life's banana skins. It seemed to me that he was up against it. I threw my mind back to the last time I had seen him. About two years ago it had been. I had looked in at his place while on a motor trip, and he had put me right off my feed by bringing a couple of green things with legs to the luncheon table, crooning over them like a young mother, and eventually losing one of them in the salad. That picture, rising before my eyes, didn't give me much confidence in the unfortunate goof's ability to woo and win, I must say, especially if the girl he had earmarked was one of these tough modern thugs, all lipstick and cool, hard, sardonic eyes, as she probably was. "'Tell me, Jeeves,' I said, wishing to know the worst, "'what sort of a girl is this girl of Gussie's?' "'I have not met the young lady, sir. Mr. Finknoddle speaks highly of her attractions.' Seemed to like her, did he? Yes, sir. Did he mention her name? Perhaps I know her. She is a Miss Bassett, sir. Miss Madeline Bassett. What? Yes, sir. I was deeply intrigued. Egad, Jeeves, fancy that. It's a small world, isn't it, what? 
The young lady is an acquaintance of yours, sir? I know her well. Your news has relieved my mind, Jeeves. It makes the whole thing begin to seem far more like a practical working proposition. Indeed, sir. Absolutely. I confess that until you supplied this information, I was feeling profoundly dubious about poor old Gussie's chances of inducing any spinster of any parish to join him in the saunter down the aisle. You will agree with me that he's not everybody's money. There may be something in what you say, sir. Cleopatra wouldn't have liked him. Possibly not, sir. And I doubt if he would go any too well with Tallulah Bankhead. No, sir. But when you tell me that the object of his affections is Miss Bassett, why then, Jeeves, hope begins to dawn a bit. He's just the sort of chap a girl like Madeline Bassett might scoop in with relish. This Bassett, I must explain, had been a fellow visitor of ours at Cannes, and as she and Angela had struck up one of those effervescent friendships which girls do strike up, I had seen quite a bit of her. Indeed, in my moodier moments, it sometimes seemed to me I could not move a step without stubbing my toe on the woman. And what made it all so painful and distressing was that the more we met, the less did I seem able to find to say to her. You know how it is with some girls. They seem to take the stuffing right out of you. I mean to say, there is something about their personality that paralyzes the vocal cords and reduces the contents of the brain to cauliflower. It was like that with this Bassett in me, so much so that I have known occasions when for minutes at a stretch, Bertram Wooster might have been observed fumbling with the tie, shuffling the feet, and behaving in all other respects in her presence like the complete dumb brick. When, therefore, she took her departure some two weeks before we did, you may readily imagine that in Bertram's opinion it was not a day too soon. It was not her beauty, mark you, that thus numbed me. She was a pretty enough girl in a droopy, blonde, saucer-eyed way, but not the sort of breath-taker that takes the breath. No, what caused this disintegration in a usually fairly fluent prattler with the sex was her whole mental attitude. I don't want to wrong anybody, so I won't go so far as to say that she actually wrote poetry, but her conversation, to my mind, was of a nature calculated to excite the liveliest suspicions. Well, I mean to say, when a girl suddenly asks you out of a blue sky if you don't sometimes feel that the stars are God's daisy chain, you begin to think a bit. As regards the fusing of her soul and mine, Therefore, there was nothing doing. But with Gussie, the position was entirely different. The thing that had stymied me, viz., that this girl was obviously all loaded down with ideals and sentiment and what not, was quite in order as far as he was concerned. Gussie had always been one of those dreamy, soulful birds. You can't shut yourself up in the country and live only for newts if you're not, and I could see no reason why if he could somehow be induced to get the low, burning words off his chest, he and the Bassett shouldn't hit it off like ham and eggs. "'She's just the type for him,' I said. "'I am most gratified to hear it, sir.' "'And he's just the type for her. "'In fine, a good thing, and one to be pushed along with the utmost energy. "'Strain every nerve, Jeeves.' "'Very good, sir,' replied the honest fellow. I will attend to the matter at once. Now, 
Up to this point, as you will doubtless agree, what you might call a perfect harmony had prevailed. Friendly gossip between employer and employed, and everything as sweet as a nut. But at this juncture, I regret to say, there was an unpleasant switch. The atmosphere suddenly changed, the storm clouds began to gather, and before we knew where we were, the jarring note had come bounding on the scene. I have known this to happen before in the Wooster home. The first intimation I had that things were about to hot up was a pained and disapproving cough from the neighborhood of the carpet. For, during the above exchanges, I should explain, while I, having dried the frame, had been dressing in a leisurely manner, donning here a sock, there a shoe, and gradually climbing into the vest, the shirt, the tie, and the knee-length, Jeeves had been down on the lower level, unpacking my effects. He now rose, holding a white object. And at the sight of it, I realized that another of our domestic crises had arrived, another of those unfortunate clashes of will between two strong men, and that Bertram, unless he remembered his fighting ancestors and stood up for his rights, was about to be put upon. I don't know if you were at Cannes this summer. If you were, you will recall that anybody with any pretensions to being the life and soul of the party was accustomed to attend binges at the casino in the ordinary evening wear trouserings topped to the north by a white mess-jacket with brass buttons. And ever since I had stepped aboard the blue train at Cannes Station, I had been wondering on and off how mine would go with Jeeves. In the matter of evening costume, you see, Jeeves is hide-bound and reactionary. I had had trouble with him before about soft-bosomed shirts, and while these mess-jackets had, as I say, been all the rage, tout ce qui à la de chic, on the Côte d'Azur, I had never concealed it from myself, even when treading the measure at the Palm Beach Casino in the one I had hastened to buy, that there might be something of an upheaval about it upon my return. I prepared to be firm. Yes, Jeeves, I said, and though my voice was suave, a close observer in a position to watch my eyes would have noticed a steely glint. Nobody has a greater respect for Jeeves's intellect than I have but this disposition of his to dictate to the hand that fed him had got, I felt, to be checked. This mess-jacket was very near to my heart, and I jolly well intended to fight for it with all the vim of grand old Sieur de Wooster at the Battle of Agincourt. Yes, Jeeves, I said, something on your mind, Jeeves. I fear that you have inadvertently left Khan in the possession of a coat belonging to some other gentleman, sir. I switched on the steely a bit more. No, Jeeves, I said in a level tone. The object under advisement is mine. I bought it out there. You wore it, sir? Every night. But surely you are not proposing to wear it in England, sir. I saw that we had arrived at the nub. Yes, Jeeves. But, sir, you were saying, Jeeves? It is quite unsuitable, sir. I do not agree with you, Jeeves. I anticipate a great popular success for this jacket. It is my intention to spring it on the public tomorrow at Pongo Twistleton's birthday party, where I confidently expect to be one long screen from start to finish. No argument, Jeeves. No discussion. 
whatever fantastic objection you may have taken to it, I wear this jacket. Very good, sir. He went on with his unpacking. I said no more on the subject. I had won the victory, and we Woosters do not triumph over a beaten foe. Presently, having completed my toilet, I bade the man a cheery farewell, and in generous mood suggested that, as I was dining out, why didn't he take the evening off and go to some improving picture or something? Sort of olive branch, if you see what I mean. He didn't seem to think much of it. Thank you, sir. I will remain in. I surveyed him narrowly. Is this dudgeon, Jeeves? No, sir. I am obliged to remain on the premises. Mr. Finknottle informed me he would be calling to see me this evening. Oh, Gussie's coming, is he? Well, give him my love. Very good, sir. Yes, sir. And a whiskey and soda and so forth. Very good, sir. Right ho, Jeeves. I then set off for the drones. At the drones I ran into Pongo Twistleton, and he talked so much about his forthcoming merrymaking of his, of which good reports had already reached me through my correspondence, that it was nearly eleven when I got home again. And scarcely had I opened the door when I heard voices in the sitting-room, and scarcely had I entered the sitting-room when I found that these proceeded from Jeeves, in what appeared at first sight to be the devil. A closer scrutiny informed me that it was Gussie Finknottle, dressed as Mephistopheles. "'What ho, Gussie?' I said. You couldn't have told it from my manner, but I was feeling more than a bit nonplussed. The spectacle before me was enough to nonplus anyone. I mean to say, this Finknottle, as I remembered him, was the sort of shy, shrinking goop who might have been expected to shake like an aspen if invited to so much as a social Saturday afternoon at the vicarage. And yet here he was, if one could credit one's senses, about to take part in a fancy-dress ball, a form of entertainment notoriously a testing experience for the toughest. And he was attending that fancy-dress ball, mark you, not like every other well-bred Englishman, as a P.R.O., but as Mephistopheles. This involving, as I need scarcely stress, not only scarlet tights, but a pretty frightful false beard. Rummy, you'll admit. However, one masks one's feelings. I betrayed no vulgar astonishment, but, as I say, what hoed with civil nonchalance. He grinned through the fungus, rather sheepishly, I thought. Oh, hello, Bertie. Long time since I saw you. Have a spot? No, thanks. I must be off in a minute. I just came round to ask Jeeves how he thought I looked. How do you think I look, Bertie? Well, the answer to that, of course, was perfectly foul. But we Woosters are men of tact, and have a nice sense of the obligations of a host. We do not tell old friends beneath our roof-tree that they are an offense to the eyesight. I evaded the question. I hear you're in London, I said carelessly. Oh, yes. Must be years since you came up. Oh, yes. And now you're off for an evening's pleasure. He shuddered a bit. He had, I noticed, a hunted air. Pleasure? Aren't you looking forward to this rout or revel? Oh, I suppose it'll be all right, he said in a toneless voice. Anyway, I ought to be off, I suppose. The thing starts round about eleven. 
I told my cab to wait. Will you see if it's there, Jeeves? Very good, sir. There was something of a pause after the door had closed. A certain constraint. I mixed myself a beaker, while Gussie, a glutton for punishment, stared at himself in the mirror. Finally, I decided that it would be best to let him know I was abreast of his affairs. It might be that it would ease his mind to confide in a sympathetic man of experience. I have generally found, with those under the influence, that what they want more than anything else is the listening ear. "'Well, Gussy, old leper,' I said, "'I've been hearing all about you.' "'Eh?' "'This little trouble of yours. Jeeves has told me everything. He didn't seem any too braced.' It is always difficult to be sure, of course, when a chap has dug himself in behind a Mephistopheles beard, but I fancy he flushed a trifle. I wish Jeeves wouldn't go gassing all over the place. It was supposed to be confidential. I could not permit this tone. Dishing up the dirt to the young master can scarcely be described as gassing all over the place, I said, with a touch of rebuke. Anyway, there it is. I know all. And I should like to begin, I said, sinking my personal opinion that the female in question was a sloppy pest in my desire to buck and encourage, by saying that Madeline Bassett is a charming girl, a winner and just the sort for you. You don't know her? Certainly I know her. What beats me is how you ever got in touch. Where did you meet her? She was staying at a place near mine in Lincolnshire the week before last. Yes, but even so, I didn't know you called on the neighbors. I don't. I met her out for a walk with her dog. The dog had got a thorn in its foot, and when she tried to take it out, it snapped at her. So, of course, I had to rally round. You extracted the thorn? Yes. And fell in love at first sight? Yes. Well, dash it, with a thing like that to give you a send-off, why didn't you cash in immediately? I hadn't the nerve. What happened? We talked a bit. What about? Oh, birds. Birds? What birds? The birds that happened to be hanging around, and the scenery, and all that sort of thing. And she said she was going to London, and asked me to look her up if I was ever there. And even after that you didn't so much as press her hand? Of course not. Well, I mean, it looked as though there was no more to be said. If a chap is such a rabbit that he can't get action when he's handed the thing on a plate, his case would appear to be pretty hopeless. Nevertheless, I reminded myself that this non-starter and I had been at school together. One must make an effort for an old school friend. Ah, well, I said, we must see what can be done. Things may brighten. At any rate, you will be glad to learn that I am behind you in this enterprise. You have Bertram Wooster in your corner, Gussie. Thanks, old man. And Jeeves, of course, which is the thing that really matters. I don't mind admitting that I winced. He meant no harm, I suppose, but I am bound to say that this tactless speech nettled me not a little. People are always nettling me like that. Giving me to understand, I mean to say, that in their opinion Bertram Wooster is a mere cipher, and that the only member of the household with brains and resources is Jeeves. It jars on me. And tonight it jarred on me more than usual, because I was feeling pretty dashed fed with Jeeves. Over the matter of the mess jacket, I mean. 
True, I had forced him to climb down, quelling him, as described, with the quiet strength of my personality, but I was still a trifle shirty at his having brought the thing up at all. It seemed to me that what Jeeves wanted was the iron hand. "'And what is he doing about it?' I inquired stiffly. "'He's been giving the position of affairs a lot of thought.' "'He has, has he?' "'It's on his advice that I'm going to this dance.' "'Why?' "'She is going to be there.' In fact, it was she who sent me the ticket of invitation, and Jeeves considered. And why not as a Pierrot? I said, taking up the point which had struck me before. Why this break with a grand old tradition? He particularly wanted me to go as Mephistopheles. I started. He did, did he? He specifically recommended that definite costume. Yes. Ha! Eh? Nothing, just ha. And I'll tell you why I said ha. Here was Jeeves, making heavy weather about me wearing a perfectly ordinary white mess jacket, a garment not only tout ce qu'il a de la chic, but absolutely de rigueur, and in the same breath, as you might say, inciting Gussie Finknoddle to be a blot on the London scene in scarlet tights. Ironical, what? One looks askance at this sort of in-and-out running. What has he got against Pierrot's? I don't think he objects to Pierrot's as Pierrot's, but in my case he thought a Pierrot would not be adequate. I don't follow that. He said the costume of the Pierrot, while pleasing to the eye, lacked the authority of the Mephistopheles costume. I still don't get it. Well, it's a matter of psychology, he said. There was a time when a remark like that would have had me snookered, but long association with Jeeves has developed the Wooster vocabulary considerably. Jeeves has always been a whale for the psychology of the individual, and now I follow him like a bloodhound when he snaps it out of the bag. Oh, psychology. Yes, Jeeves is a great believer in the moral effect of clothes. He thinks I might be emboldened in a striking costume like this. He said a pirate chief would be just as good. In fact, a pirate chief was his first suggestion, but I objected to the boots. I saw his point. There is enough sadness in life without having fellows like Gussie Finknoddle going about in sea boots. And are you emboldened? Well, to be absolutely accurate, Bertie, old man, no. A gust of compassion shook me. After all, Though we had lost touch a bit of recent years, this man and I had once thrown inked darts at each other. Gussie, I said, take an old friend's advice and don't go within a mile of this binge. But it's my last chance of seeing her. She's off tomorrow to stay with some people in the country. Besides, you don't know. Don't know what? That this idea of Jeeves's won't work. I feel a most frightful chump now, yes but who can say whether that will not pass off when I get into a mob of other people in fancy dress? I had the same experience as a child one year during the Christmas festivities. They dressed me up as a rabbit, and the shame was indescribable. But when I got to the party and found myself surrounded by scores of other children, many in costumes even ghastlier than my own, I perked up amazingly, joined freely in the revels, and was able to eat so heartily a supper that I was sick twice in the cab coming home. 
What I mean is, you can't tell in cold blood. I weighed this. It was specious, of course. And you can't get away from it that, fundamentally, Jeeves's idea is sound. In a striking costume like Mephistopheles, I might quite easily pull off something pretty impressive. Color does make a difference. Look at newts. During the courting season, the male newt is brilliantly colored. It helps him a lot. But you aren't a male newt. I wish I were. Do you know how a male newt proposes, Bertie? He just stands in front of the female newt, vibrating his tail and bending his body in a semicircle. I could do that on my head. No, you won't find me grousing if I were a male newt. But if you were a male newt, Madeline Bassett wouldn't look at you. Not with the eye of love, I mean. She would if she were a female newt. But she isn't a female newt. No, but suppose she was. Well, if she was, you wouldn't be in love with her. Well, yes, I would, if I were a male newt. A slight throbbing about the temples told me that this discussion had reached saturation point. Well, anyway, I said, coming down to hard facts and cutting out all this visionary stuff about vibrating tails and whatnot, the salient point that emerges is that you are booked to appear at a fancy dress ball. And I tell you out of my riper knowledge of fancy dress balls, Gussie, that you won't enjoy yourself. It isn't a question of enjoying yourself. I wouldn't go. I must go. I keep telling you she's off to the country tomorrow. I gave it up. So be it, I said. Have it your own way. Yes, Jeeves. Mr. Finknoddle's cab, sir. Ah, the cab, eh? Your cab, Gussie. Oh, the cab. Oh, right. Of course, yes, rather. Thanks, Jeeves. Well, so long, Bertie. And giving me the sort of weak smile Roman gladiators used to give the emperor before entering the arena, Gussie trickled off, and I turned to Jeeves. The moment had arrived for putting him in his place, and I was all for it. It was a little difficult to know how to begin, of course. I mean to say, while firmly resolved to tick him off, I didn't want to gash his feelings too deeply. Even when displaying the iron hand, we Woosters like to keep the thing fairly matey. However, on consideration, I saw that there was nothing to be gained by trying to lead up to it gently. It's never any use beating about the bee. Jeeves, I said, may I speak frankly? Certainly, sir. What I have to say may wound you. Not at all, sir. Well, then, I have been having a chat with Mr. Finknoddle, and he has been telling me about this Mephistopheles scheme of yours. Yes, sir. Now let me get it straight. If I follow your reasoning correctly, you think that, stimulated by being upholstered throughout in scarlet tights, Mr. Finknoddle, on encountering the adored object, will vibrate his tail and generally let himself go with a whoop. I am of opinion that he will lose much of his normal diffidence, sir. I don't agree with you, Jeeves. No, sir? No. In fact, not to put too fine a point upon it, I consider that of all the dashed, silly, driveling ideas I have ever heard in my puff, this is the most blithering and futile. It won't work. Not a chance. All you have done is to subject Mr. Finknoddle to the nameless horrors of a fancy dress ball for nothing. And this is not the first time this sort of thing has happened. To be quite candid, Jeeves, 
I have frequently noticed before now a tendency or a disposition on your part to become—what's the word—I could not say, sir. Eloquent? No, it's not eloquent. Elusive? No, it's not elusive. It's on the tip of my tongue. Begins with an E and means a jolly sight too clever. Elaborate, sir? That is the exact word I was after. Too elaborate, Jeeves. That is what you are frequently prone to become. Your methods are not simple, not straightforward. You cloud the issue with a lot of fancy stuff that is not of the essence. All that Gussie needs is the elderly brotherly advice of a seasoned man of the world, so that what I suggest is that from now onward you leave this case to me. Very good, sir. You lay off and devote yourself to your duties about the home. Very good, sir. I shall no doubt think of something quite simple and straightforward, yet perfectly effective ere long. I will make a point of seeing Gussie tomorrow. Very good, sir. Right ho, Jeeves. But on the morrow, all those telegrams started coming in, and I confess that for twenty-four hours I didn't give the poor chap a thought, having problems of my own to contend with. is brought to you by Recreation CSL and is an excerpt from Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess, presented by the Siegel Center for Performing Arts. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Broadway Happy Hour. What would be Broadway Happy Hour? Songs, a little bit of Disney. Everyone loves Disney. The songs are so great. I mean, I wish I'd written them myself. So, um, next Friday... What day is it? Saturday? Yeah, I guess. We technically say next Friday. Um, uh, Happily Ever After, which was to be the show by Full Circle Productions, was going to go up. And of course, with everything going on, it's, they're not able to put on their show. So I dedicate this next song to them. Um, and why don't we just go ahead and save this Disney section for them? Because they worked so hard on that Happily Ever After show. And I'm sure that they'll come back better than ever when we can all get back assembled and they'll put on a fabulous show for us all. So this is for the cast of Happily Ever After. A dream is a wish your heart makes when you're fast asleep. In dreams you will lose your heartaches, whatever you wish for you keep. Have faith in your dreams and someday
if any of you ever waited to the very, very end of Beauty and the Beast when they run the credits, hey, Karen, I love you too. That's so sweet of you to say. Um, at the end of Beauty and the Beast, if one of you wait all the way to the end of the credits, Howard Ashman had just passed away. Howard Ashman, who wrote all the lyrics to all of our favorite childhood songs. And uh, they've just had the most beautiful quote at the end of the film. And it says, to our friend Howard, who gave a mermaid her voice and a beast his soul, we will be forever grateful. Isn't that gorgeous? Mm. It gets me every time. I get all verklempt just thinking about it. A mermaid her voice and a beast his soul. Thank you, Howard Ashman.
And that's transposed down a tone, if you can imagine. Let's see what we're doing. With my high starch collar and my high top shoes and my hair piled high above my head, I went to lose a jolly hour on the trolley and lost my heart instead. With his light brown derby and his bright green tie, he was quite the handsomest of men. I started to get.
concludes this segment from Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess, presented by the Siegel Center for Performing Arts and brought to you by the Parks and Recreation Department of Cote St. Luke. Well, that is today's episode of the Cote St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service. If you're listening at 2 p.m. on our phone line, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.